0: Hello and welcome to SciSection. My name is Sarah Jafari. I am a fourth year English major at York University, and I'm also a volunteer journalist here at SciSection. Today, I'm here with Jay Ingram. Jay was a co-host of the Discovery Channel show, Daily Planet, for 16 years and is also the author of the book series, The Science of Why. Jay, I'm so excited to be able to talk with you today. Thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Oh, I'm happy to be here. And I'm also happy that an English major is interested in science.
0: Right? Isn't that such a weird relationship between English and science? But I feel like you have also in your career brought those two together.
1: I actually think, um, now I have to be a little careful saying this, but some of the best science communicators I know didn't necessarily have a a university background in science. And, you know, I think coming at science from outside science uh, makes it easier to um, get it sometimes, get in the minds of the audience who aren't necessarily uh, science grads either.
0: Exactly, and that's really our passion and purpose here at SciSection, to make science accessible for everyone who really isn't into science.
1: Yeah, and also, you know, when if you do it well, uh, your audience, if they weren't interested in science to begin with, will start to understand that, um, as my partner who runs a science center here in Calgary says, it's the greatest adventure story in the world. And uh, you can have opi- negative opinions about science but, and, and scientists, but if you sort of put that to, a side, to the side and say, what are scientists finding out about us and our place in the world and in the universe? It is an adventure story. So it, it's always been a little difficult for me to understand why, if you're told about it in the right way, you wouldn't be interested in it.
0: That is such a great point, and it's good that we carry the same mindset here at Section. So, Jay, I kind of want to start out by playing a fun little game, if that's okay with you. I call it Burning Questions with Sarah. Do you want to play?
1: <laughs> Do I have a choice? No, no. <laughs> no, no, sure, I'll play.
0: Perfect. So, if you could get the answer to one question, what would it be?
1: Uh, I've always been really interested in the Neanderthal people, mm-hmm because they coexisted for quite a long time with that variety of hominin that gave rise to modern people. Um, you know, they, they split off in different ways and migrated to different parts of the world. But they, co, you know, if you focus on Europe, and I don't want to be Eurocentric, but it's a good example, uh, they coexisted with modern humans for quite a while and then died out. And yet the accumulating evidence is it's not that they were dumb. It's not that they were clumsy or oaf-like as they have had been uh, portrayed in the past. Nobody really knows exactly what happened, but they died out about, you know, 32 to 34,000 years ago, clinging on to existence in like in Gibraltar, the very southern tip of Spain. So I want to know what happened to them. We all carry, some, you know, 2% of our genome is Neanderthal genes. So I think we have a stake in the in the answer to this question. So, that would be one that, uh, if I get that before my career is over, I'd be
0: happy. That was a great answer. So let's start off by you telling us a little about your career and your history as a science broadcaster. If
1: anyone listening and that might include you, wants to communicate science as a living, as a career, whether you do it full-time or part-time, there would be two things, I think, about my career that might be relevant. One is I did my undergrad in microbiology at the University of Alberta, and it actually wasn't until third year that I had a course that that really turned me on to science, a virology course, actually, and I learned about those viruses that attack bacteria and It seems so esoteric, right? They're called bacteriophage, but the way they work is so incredibly interesting. How they land on the surface of a bacterial cell, inject their DNA into the bacterial cell, and then their DNA co-opts the whole cellular machinery of the bacterium to stop doing bacterial things and start making new viruses. I just thought this was the the most sensational biological idea I'd ever come across. And it was somehow around that time, and I can't pinpoint it, that I started being interested in talking about science to people who weren't scientists. Then I went to U of T and did a master's degree and even became more confirmed in this idea that I wanted to, quote unquote, bring science to the people. But I had no clue how to do it. And so, what did I like? There just didn't seem to be any avenues. This was a long time ago, and um, the nature of things, which everybody knows on CBC and with David Suzuki, there was a nature of things, but it was two physics profit in a classroom doing it. There was one science writer in Canada of the Globe and Mail, like it, the scene was totally different from what it is now. So, getting my master's, I faced was faced with a decision, but. One half of the decision was I'd have no clue what to do, so I'll start a PhD. So I actually went to McMaster, started a PhD in uh, prenatal biology. A really cool topic I had, but it was hopeless. Like I just, I was diverting away from academia so quickly that it was a waste of time for me. It was a waste of time for my supervisor. I think I lasted maybe four months in my PhD. It might have been the shortest PhD attempt ever. Um, got a job, luckily, uh, teaching at Ryerson, teaching uh, biology and chemistry. At the time, Ryerson had a, a radio station, which is now, uh, I think it's called Jazz 99 or 91.1, but they did educational broadcasting. And they invited faculty to, um, you know, if they were wanted to learn how to write a script for radio, to come on over and do it. So out of the entire Ryerson faculty, I think four people did that. And I was the only one that ended up writing a script. So here's the thing, Sarah, even though, like if you'd asked me at that before I got to Ryerson, what do you wanna do, make films, do TV, write, do radio? Radio would have been at the bottom of my list. I just hadn't even thought about it. And I think the only piece of advice I would ever give anybody is when you see an opportunity, no matter how risky or a little bit different from what you were thinking, It might be, if it aligns with what you think you really want to do, do it. And, you know, I I won't go on with the rest of it, but from doing radio there, I was doing radio on the CBC, then I hosted Quirks and Quarks, then I went to Discovery. For about the last 25 years, I've been writing books too. But it was lucky in a way that the job happened and the invite to do radio happened. But when those lucky moments come up, you got to act, you got to run. If that door opens a little bit, you got to run through it. Anyway, and then Daily Planet happened and I just kept writing books all the way through.
0: Right. And do you enjoy being like a freelance creator more or did you like having that kind of pressure on you?
1: So, um, and it isn't just the pressure, it's really, do you like sitting in front of your computer all by yourself writing or do you like going to a studio in pre-COVID days? And uh, working with a bunch of people that you really like and who are so good at what they do that there actually isn't nearly as much pressure as it might appear. So I give, I'll give you an example. And you got to remember, this is in the days when television was actually done on tape, mm-hmm. right? And uh, we would sometimes start, no, Daily Planet, people would already be watching the first part of the show, and we hadn't put together the last 15 minutes yet. So we were still in the studio, people were watching. We had to get the rest of the show done or it would have been a complete disaster. But you know, I remember that being, yeah, a little bit of pressure, but I also remember, no problem, we're gonna do that. And um, we were very lucky at Daily Planet because um, there there is pressure uh, in what you might g- generically call a TV newsroom, which is what we were. And um, they're renowned, notorious for being um, evil places to work, but we never had that. Uh, we I, I'm still friends with many of the people that I worked with, even though I haven't done it for like since 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just it was just such a great workplace, and we were doing something unique. We were the only primetime hour long, five day a week science show in the world.
0: Mm-hmm. So.
1: You know, how can you not be proud of uh, participating in something like that?
0: So as someone who has received several honorary degrees and awards, what advice can you give to someone who is also interested in becoming um, involved in science journalism? Like what steps do you think they would have to take?
1: Well, the first thing is don't worry about awards and honorary degrees, because if you stick around long enough, you might get one. But in the end, it doesn't materially uh, affect your life, except you can If you want to, you can list them after your name. I'm very shy about dispensing advice just because my situation when I started, which was decades ago, is pretty different. Like if I were in your position, like right now, and say you wanted to be, you wanted to communicate science in some form, I would, like I'd probably look at journalism school, but that might not be the right choice. Um, what I think people interested in doing this should do is really think hard about what turns you on the most. Like if you like science, why do you like science? What is it about science? Um, do you love talking about science? If so, why? Like is it is it a passion of yours? Do you love the detail? Do you love the adventure aspect of it? What? Uh, because it isn't always possible to do this, but if you can possibly set yourself up to feed on that passion, then that really is what you should do. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a good example for that because even though uh, referring to what I told you earlier, um, I knew by the time I was kind of halfway or partway through grad school, that this is what I wanted to do. I had no idea how to do it. And uh, I ended up, you know, it was probably a mistake to start a PhD, but I didn't know what else to do. Like that, you know, when you're a science person, that kind of seemed to be the the route to go. It's a little different now because there are options. You could do TikTok videos, you can do Instagram, you can write a blog, you can do a podcast, but you've, it's really important to sort of sort through those things and think, this is what I like the best. So I'm gonna try doing this. You know, like safe, secure jobs, in communicating science are pretty rare. So, you know, maybe you do it part time at first. Maybe you you get a job that gives you enough money that you can survive, um, and then and then work on your your communication skills because, you know, you don't do it. There's no such thing as an overnight sensation. Anybody that's good at this has been doing it for a long time.
0: Mm-hmm. And during your research for The Science of Why, what kind of surprised you the most?
1: Um, questions like, did Shakespeare actually write all the Shakespearean plays? Or, andor, or, uh, was Robin Hood a real person? These forays into history and literature, uh, I love them. Like the Robin Hood story, don't get me started on it because I'll go on for quite a long time. But it's fascinating because here's a, a legend that everybody knows and we identify with. Because how could you not identify with a bunch of rogues who rob rich people and give their money to the poor and kill the king's deer in the, in the king's forest and live in the woods? Like, that's just amazing. Unfortunately, there's really not a lot of evidence that Robin A. Robin Hood actually existed. So I loved those kinds of, I I do love history. You know, is it true that Isaac Newton watched an apple drop from a tree and then decided that, or understood how gravity worked? These are great, great stories. They're insights into people. And you know, um, people are at the heart of every good story. Even science stories. So, yeah, you know, I think how nature works and and the universe are really, really interesting subjects. But in the end, and Daily Planet was a perfect example of this, it's really all about people. That TV show would not have worked had we not had interesting guests. It just so happened that the guests we had were somehow involved in science and tech. Uh, So, I guess that was one of the surprises. The other was how sometimes questions and answers fall into your lap. There was a paper in Science about, uh, well, when I was writing the book, so let's say eight months ago, nine months ago, uh, arguing that the year 536 was the worst year ever because there were, in Europe and Asia, there were uh, volcanic eruptions that happened on our side of the world, absolutely blotted out the sun, people starved to death, you couldn't grow crops, it was cold. Uh, And then there was the first uh, version of the Black Death, the Justinian Plague happened. And so it was argued, this is the worst year ever. And I thought, I read the article and I thought, actually, that makes a great question. What was the worst year ever? Of course, then having 2020 (laughs) (laughs) means that there's some competition for that title. Um, So sometimes I was just able to read a piece of curious and interesting research, turn it into a question.
0: Right. And as an English major, I have
1: to know, did Shakespeare write all his Shakespearean plays? So it's still... Uh, definitely he co-wrote. So definitely some of them he didn't write. And I don't ask me to name which ones, because I can't remember. But some he had a co-writer, or even in one or two cases, two co-writers. And then there are some that seem unambiguously his. The issue is... With some of them, it's known who his co-authors were, but in many of them, if you're going to argue it was never Shakespeare, which people do, right, because he seems relatively unlettered, he didn't travel, how does he know about Denmark, is he, if he's never been to Denmark, etc., etc. There really is no convincing replacement for him. That's just the thing. People have been, many aversions, many individuals have been offered up as a substitute, but It's just not convincing. The other cool part about it is that science plays a role in this because uh, you can computer analyze the text and look for trends and habits of of a particular writer, including Shakespeare, and then see if the texts in the plays in question reflect those patterns or not. So, um, although it sounds like a historical literary question, uh, it's actually scientific. And the same is true of um, Robin Hood.
0: Right. That's really interesting. I never even considered that maybe Shakespeare didn't write his plays. That's crazy. Oh,
1: listen, there was even a, um, there was a big, there was a movie about it um, a few years ago arguing that it wasn't him at all, but you know what, he is still the main man in the Shakespearean plays as far as I'm concerned.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Have you ever changed any of your habits as a result of anything you learned through conducting research for the science of why?
1: Yeah, so um, not so much for the science of why, but I did write a book called The End of Memory about Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. And I've had people in my family uh, who had it. So I've paid, uh, like my mother did, so I've paid pretty close attention to that part of Alzheimer's research that uh, is informative about what you can do to lower your risk. And there's a whole bunch of things that you can do to minimize risk. I mean, you know, in rare cases, there are dominant genes that if you inherit one of them, you're going to get it. But those are extremely rare, really less than 1% of all Alzheimer's and the rest of it. You may inherit genes that tilt your risk a little bit one way or the other, but there are also many other things like uh, proper diet, get enough sleep, uh, get exercise, maintain social contact, which is harder and harder for people as they get older. And you know what? Two of the most critical things. If you have, well, hearing loss is a risk associated with Alzheimer's disease. At first, nobody knew what the connection was. Could it be that hearing loss is just an early um, hint that Alzheimer's is coming, associated with the disease itself, or is it the lack of social contact, the loss of social contact, when you don't hear what's going on around you. And I wear hearing aids, so I'm very familiar with this. Um, is it that because lack of social contact is a risk for Alzheimer's? It looks now early evidence is that if you wear hearing aids, you minimize that risk, but you know, don't get me started on hearing aids. Like people are so reluctant to wear them because they make you look old. Well, and meanwhile, people have got earbuds hanging out of their ears, right? And and that doesn't make you look old. So somehow, but it's a stigma. And if people only knew that, you know, the average weight from the time somebody is kind of aware that they have hearing loss till the time they go get their hearing checked, the average lapse of time is seven years. If people knew that it was a, uh, somehow connected with Alzheimer's, they wouldn't wait seven years. So there's... There's an example, but diet, you know, is um, it's the sort of typical, like a good Alzheimer's diet is the same kind of diet that you'd use for good health. You know, eat nuts, don't eat too much red meat, don't, eat, don't have too much dairy, uh, eat lots of vegetables, you know, Mediterranean diet, whatever. Um, so I've done that with respect to that. Anyway, that's, and you know, the other thing that's always true in communicating science, no matter what you're doing, the more eyes are on it, the more ears hear it, the better it'll be. And you've got to steel yourself for criticism. We have a favorite phrase some of us uh, called kill your darlings, which is, you're, let's say you're writing an essay, but you're stuck. There's a place where you're stuck. Quite often it's true that you're stuck because you've come up with a fabulous phrase that you really, really love, but actually it's inhibiting the rest of your writing because it's taking you down a path that isn't easy to navigate. And if you kill your darling phrase, just take it out, you'll find that somehow it opens up and you're able to write it better. You just can't be too attached to the stuff that you've produced that you love because you always got to remember it's not about you. It's about the audience. Uh, my, my typical example of this is a scientist is asked by a local community group, let's say, to give a talk about his or her work. And the first thought that often enters their mind is, um, "Oh, so I'll tell them about the experiments that we're doing right now. The actual correct question or thought is, I wonder what they want to know about. You put it on the audience, not yourself. And I think many scientists would be shocked to know exactly what audiences want to know. Now, sometimes it's predictable, like if you're giving a talk on Alzheimer's disease, then people want to know really three things. Am I going to get it? Uh, If I'm at high risk, what can I do to mitigate that risk? And if I do get it, what then? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm pretty confident those are the three common questions. But it's not so clear if a biochemist is asked to speak about the work in their lab. And it might be as simple as, What's it like to work in a lab? Like, what do those grad students and postdocs or whatever they're called do? You know, and I mean, scientists think, scientists approach research questions in a different way than um, you and I might. And uh, you never lose if you start by wondering what the audience wants.
0: Right. Well, Jay, what are the other projects that you're working on at the moment?
1: So with a couple of friends, we're trying to launch a podcast Um, I have to say it's a lot of work and and I kind of thought well you know having a background in radio it would be easier than it is but it's not but we're doing it but you know I'm always I always keep track of what's going on in science and uh, always trying to think about how certain kinds of information about science might be incorporated. I'll tell you one thing which I like doing but we haven't been able to do much lately is that I give science talks with a band, and we incorporate rock and roll basically into a science talk, uh, based on the premise that you know science talks are fine, but surely a science talk with a band would be better.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, we've we we do like whole programs. We did we did one called Lunacy about um, humans going to the moon because we did it for the fiftieth anniversary of the first landing in 2019 and um, you know incorporated a lot of music and a couple of actors and really turned it into much more of a presentation a show than a talk we've done one called the giant walk through brain where we actually move through the brain and stop in various places and talk about curious and intriguing individuals who uh, are are prominent in the history of brain science Um, but you know doing that during covid is kind of a non-starter so we're uh, just biding our time until we can do it again
0: Mm -hmm. that's wonderful jay i just wanted to thank you for taking the time to speak with me today it was honestly such an honor and a delight to be able to speak with you and i know a lot of our other listeners just like me grew up watching you on the daily planet so it was just a great experience altogether.
1: well thank you it was really fun
0: Thank you. So that's it for this week, everyone. Make sure you check out our Instagram at SciSection. I'm Sarah Jafari, and thank you so much for listening. Take care and stay safe.